0: Noon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElveny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events.
1: Hello and welcome to Intelligent Talk. Our website is intelligenttalk.com. We're very pleased to have a very special program tonight today with Miss Julie Summers, who is the author of The Colonel of Tamar Khan. Philip Toonsy and The Bridge on the River Kwai. Her grandfather was the basis for the Alec Guinness character in one of my favorite films, The Bridge on the River Kwai. So I'm very happy to have her on the program. Thank you so much, Miss Summers, for coming on. Thank you so much for inviting me. I just want to get your website. It's Julie U Summers, uh, K. correct? That is correct, yes. Okay, great. So if I could just start. Um, your your grandfather. Uh, when did he get into the service, Philip Toosey? He, he he was at a bank, right? And and he was brought in that way. Things.
0: Yes. So Philip Toosey was born in 1904, and when he came, he was in Peru briefly in the 1920s. And when he returned, he joined Baring's Bank, where he worked for the rest of his life. And the head of Baring's Bank in Liverpool was uh, a First World War veteran who insisted that everybody in the bank did. Some form of military service. So, in the he joined the Territorial Army, the reserves, in 1929 as a lieutenant. And by the outbreak of the Second World War, he'd risen to the rank of major. And he then went out to France uh, at the middle of September 1939, and he spent the Phoney War, which was the war between September and May, in. France and Belgium, getting very cold on the Maginot line. And then, of course, D-Day happened, uh, Dunkirk happened, and he was um, evacuated from the beaches of Dunkirk on the 2nd of June and then came back to, to Britain in nineteen forty.
1: And then he makes his way out to the Far East, right, too, and he's, he's there when <laughs> Singapore
0: right. So what happened was that he asked to be retrained. Um, so they sent him to officer training school and he then was put in charge of the Norfolk regiment. Norfolk's on the east coast of England. And he was put in charge of this regiment, which was, when he took it over, was pretty feeble. Um, but he got them all sharpened up and well trained and as crack shots. And they were sent out via... America, via uh, via Nova Scotia, to the the Middle East, in fact, is where they were destined. But on the 7th of December 1941, he was in the captain's cabin when he heard about the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the invasion of Hong Kong and Malaysia, or Malaya as it was in those days. And so the ship, the whole convoy was immediately transferred to Singapore, where he arrived on the 29th of January. And he had a fortnight fighting. Two weeks fighting in um, in on Singapore, uh, and then he got caught.
1: Yes, yeah, Singapore. You you mentioned in your book that it was the largest, the greatest military defeat that the British had had. And I wasn't aware of that until I read your book. It was a, <laughs> yeah, it was. a
0: impregnable fortress of Singapore, and it, it fell in a, it fell in two weeks. It was an absolute disaster, and Churchill was so humiliated by it because nobody has expected it to fall. But the trouble was that there was no air coverage, so there was no air cover for them, and the Japanese were highly efficient at um, jungle warfare, and the British had really never come across uh, an enemy like it. Uh, and they retreated all the way down the Malayan Peninsula, and he was in fact briefly on the Malaya. Uh, mainland himself and then he he retreated to um, Singapore and what's actually quite interesting, he was awarded a DSO in the field because he was a very brave leader and two days before the surrender, the surrender took place on the 15th of February 1942 and on the 13th he was called to the headquarters of General Key who was in charge of the land army on Singapore and he was ordered to evacuate to India and he refused
1: DSO is a distinguished service uh...
0: (laughs) Distinguished Service Order, that's correct,
1: yeah. So he got his Distinguished Service Order. He'd been
0: called up in front of General Key and been told he was going to go to India to train another regiment. And he said no. And General Key was very taken aback. But he explained two things. He said, firstly, in the territorial army... An order is a matter for discussion. And Secondly, he felt very strongly that he could not possibly leave his men. He had 700 men in his regiment, and he did not feel able to leave those men to the mercy of the Japanese captors. So he refused to go, um, and General Key could do nothing to persuade him, so he stayed and was caught, along with 60,000 other Allied soldiers, um, on the
1: 15th of February. He was kind of like a mini-MacArthur then. MacArthur, who did leave the troops, was ordered by FDR to leave, and he left, and of course your grandfather stayed. Um, yeah, he's absolutely religious about it. And the Japanese commander, I think, was the same person who was the Tiger of the Philippines or Tiger of Malay, General Yamashita. I think was his name. Yeah,
0: uh, General Yamashita. is he, a very tough man.
1: Yes, and I remember being yeah. in Sentosa, the island next to Singapore, and seeing those guns, and they were all trained out towards the water. They wouldn't. They were not really expecting a land attack to the extent that they did. Okay, so correct, absolutely. So, he, so your grandfather is captured. He's sent to um, Thailand, and then he is basically assigned to build uh, these famous bridges, which is for the Japanese to move their troops in the anticipated invasion of India through Burma. Now it's called Minamar, but at that point it was, it was Thailand, obviously. And your grandfather is, is is and he he it's two bridges that he built, right? Not just one, like in the movie, correct?
0: So he was he was initially he was on Singapore Island for six months, and then in October 42, he was sent up to Singapore with his men and with many other thousands of men, and he was taken to a place called Kanchanaburi, which is a provincial town. And on the outskirts of Kanchanaburi, there was um, a camp which had started to be built. And the key thing about this camp was that it was on the confluence of two rivers, on the River Mae Klong, which is a huge river uh, coming down um, from up country, and then the River Kwai. Which is which runs up into the jungle, or rather runs down from the jungles, and it the confluence happens at Kanchanaburi, and his job was to build a bridge over the ri- river Mae because it flooded massively in the um, monsoon season, and so they thought they needed a steel and concrete bridge. So first they built a wooden service bridge, and then after that they built the wooden, the steel and concrete bridge. And interestingly, the. Bridges, there are 688 bridges along the, that track of the Thailand-Burma Railway, which is 415 kilometers, so I don't know, 300 miles long. Um, there are 688 bridges, and all but nine of them were built of wood, and they were built to an American design, so-called the Merriman design. So it was rather interesting that that popped up when I was writing the book.
1: Did the Japanese steal that design, the way they stole from Howard Hughes? Apparently he helped design the Zero Fighter, apparently. That was, that was Howard Hughes' That's right. So I guess that was yeah. from American design. So um yeah. could you just take us to the um the experience please of your grandfather? I mean I've seen the movie it's one of my favorite films of course but the experience of your grandfather in the camps and for example um uh, escape escape was unlike the film it was okay to escape right I mean, he knew about some escapes and didn't really help
0: or- of a camp, and he was only in charge because he was the most senior British officer. So by the time he was out in Singapore, he was an he was lieutenant colonel. In fact, he was an acting lieutenant colonel, but he was lieutenant colonel to And so he was put in charge of this camp, and he had 3,500 men, of whom the majority were British and Australian, but he had a small number of uh, Dutch from the from the East Indies who had been captured in March 42. And there were two major escape attempts, uh, successful. And the thing is, it was the duty of a British prisoner of war to try and escape. And the Japanese had forced them to sign an agreement to say they would not try. And it was an agreement that was illegal and it was signed under duress. And Tuzi did not believe it. So when two of his officers and five of his men came to him and said, we're going to escape, his first reaction is, I'll come with you. And then the men said, no, 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 you mustn't, sir. You must stay because the morale of the men will drop if you come with us. And so they escaped and the men were caught about three days later and were taken back to the camp and shot. And then the two officers managed to stay away for about a fortnight, two weeks, and they eventually were found, and they were brought back to camp. They were interrogated, and then they were
1: bayoneted. So it wasn't like the Alec Guinness character in the movie where he has these sort of ambivalent about the escapes. He's like, well, we've been ordered to surrender. I'm not even sure we can escape. There wasn't that in actuality then.
0: No, I mean, Years later, um, a very, very good article came out about about him, and he'd, he'd never really been able to explain to people what his his sort of philosophy was on the railway. But this this man really got to the bottom of it, and his philosophy was: we are here as prisoners of the Japanese. I have to do my utmost to look after my men, and so anything that he could do to keep them physically safe, to keep them safe from the Japanese, from random beatings, from you know which there was a lot of, but also to keep them physically fit and to keep their morale up. And he felt that anything he could do to do that would be justified. And so sometimes he did what some people would think would be collaboration, and other times he was deeply underhand. So on what some people might construe as collaboration, he worked with the Japanese command, and he said, I will let my men work for you, including the officers, on the condition that you give us one rest day, in every 10 days you allow my men to have a canteen which would help supplement their diets because they did get paid a pittance but they could buy eggs and peanut butter but the third thing crucially was that all the orders for the men would be given in english and not japanese and that was a major concession major because it meant that he could ask his regimental sergeant majors for example to hand out the tools the night before work parties took place so basically he gave the men a very clear structure Um, and of course it helped massively and in his camp the death rate um on the bridge building camp was nine men out of 3,500
1: that's amazing yeah and so that is another difference from the film too there wasn't this struggle with the officers because as you know a big part of the film is it's alec guinness colonel nicholson not working because the geneva code doesn't allow officers to work and that wasn't the case that
0: did happen in there were other camps where the British officers took a stand and said, officers shall not work. Okay. And Tuzi, when he heard that the Japanese were going to order the officers to work, he went to see, he called all his officers together, and he said, this is the position. The Japanese are going to order you to work. You can make up your mind whether you're going to work and therefore better protect your men or whether you're going to refuse, in which case I will refuse with you, and we will get shot, and I will get shot with you. So he was absolutely unafraid, and he put it to the officers, and in the end, they all unanimously agreed that their duty was to their men rather than sticking to the, the, the code of the law. But at the next door camp um, at Chunkai, the officers did take a stand, and they were threatened uh, on the parade ground by the Japanese, who drove up with machine guns, as you saw in the film, uh, but nobody was shot, thank goodness.
1: And one of the interesting and they
0: had to give it in the
1: end. Yes. One of the yeah. interesting things from your book as well, which I did not know, is that it was mostly Korean guards. Do you hear about the Korean women as comfort women used by the Japanese essentially forced into prostitution? You hear about the Ukrainian guards which guarded like Sobobor, the German death camps for the Germans. It was I think like Sobobor had almost all Ukrainian guards, then the SS were essentially yeah. officers. But I did not know that there were the Korean guards essentially were were they in the majority of the camp?
0: Yes, they were. So what the, the position was that the Japanese had been um, sitting on Korea for over oh, 30 plus years and um, they used, they had very little opinion of the Koreans. They regarded them as sort of not real people. It was it's very shocking actually. They were deeply racist towards them. And so they got the Koreans to do their dirty work. If you think about it, they, the Japanese ended up with 130,000 prisoners of war in prison camps all over Southeast Asia. And you're not going to put your best men Best soldiers on to guard in these camps because basically prisoners were regarded as men who were defeated and had given up and were, were to be despised. So they used the Koreans, who they had no opinion of, to guard the camps. And the Koreans were vicious because it meant that they felt they had a, they had a power over people for the first time and they'd been very badly treated by the Japanese. So they meted out that treatment to the, uh, to the British and the Australians and the Americans who were in the camps. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why... The prisoners had such a bad time was because they were they were being they were they were the sort of kicking boy for the, um, for, the for the
1: Koreans. That's very interesting because also in Sobobor the Ukrainian guards were in many cases more brutal than the Germans. So it was the same type of deal. Yeah. They had to look down upon other people. One of the, the obviously the commander of the fil- in the film is named Saito Colonel Saito, and also the, the commander of this camp is named Saito as well. Correct in real life? I that,
0: that is that is one of those extraordinary coincidences. But in the a colonel, in real life he was a regimental sergeant major who had he'd been in a cavalry regiment and I've actually got a photograph of him on his horse. So he was a proper soldier, he was the only proper soldier from the Imperial Japanese Army that my grandfather came in touch with. And they they actually became, they actually worked together quite successfully and when the escape happened that we talked about briefly, um, Saito went to Tusi and said did you know these men were going to escape? And Saito said, yes. And he said, who else knew? And he said, it was only me. I'm the only person who knew, the only person they were told who told me. And Saito then punished him. He gave him a big beating, and then he made him stand outside in the sun for 24 hours with his hands above his head, which was a typical Japanese punishment. But Tuzi completely understood that. He'd caused Saito to lose face. But he also knew that because Saito had punished him in such an ostensibly humiliating way that would get him off being interrogated by the Kempeitai, who were the Gestapo of, of the Japanese army so Saito was protecting Tuzi and they ended up by having quite a good informal agreement where Saito would give him concessions, for example he allowed him to have the um, canteens as we know, he helped him have the Yasumi days, the rest days and anything Saito could do to make the camp function better, he did because he knew that Jusie would go along with him and comply with any of his wishes. So it was a very good relationship. And at the end of the war, I mean, they weren't friends, they were still enemies, but it was a good relationship that worked. At the end of the war, Saito was to be screened for war crimes, and my grandfather was in charge of the screening. And when Saito's name came up, he said, let him go.
1: Yes, and he actually visited your grandfather's grave, didn't he? He became a Catholic. Yeah, so
0: he he then came back from, uh, so he he went straight back to Japan. He converted to Christianity, which is quite unusual. And he wanted to come and see my grandfather, and he didn't see him while he was still alive, but he visited uh, his grave on the 12th of August. 1984, which would have been the old man's 80th birthday, and um, he wrote an incredibly moving letter to my uncle afterwards, saying that he'd he'd li- he, he could die happy because he'd fulfilled his last duty, which was to pay his respects to the man who had changed the philosophy of his life.
1: Could, could you just tell me what, approximately what the dates were that they he was under the control of Saito, your your grandfather? Uh, My
0: grandfather was under the control of Saito from the 21st of October 1942 until the 1st of May 1943, and then he was moved to a different camp, and Saito crops up again in his life in 1944, but but he wasn't in charge then, he was just, basically he was just second in command, so he didn't have any relationship with my grandfather the second time around.
1: What also is interesting in your book? So you said I think I can't remember if this is a book or in a speech you gave, because I saw some speeches you gave as well. You said the Japanese in the film were most annoyed by their engineering portrayal as being incompetent engineers, not by being cruel, but just being portrayed as incompetent. Could you just discuss that? I mean, they they were competent engineers, I guess, right? They wasn't.
0: They were enormously competent engineers, and there are are photographs um, taken by the Germans of the Japanese engineers surveying the railway. Um, trace in 1937. So the Japanese had already planned to build this railway. Ideas for the railway had existed um, in the 1890s, but the Brits had concluded that the loss of life would be so high on using using labour, uh, using local labour, that it was too much of it. It was an engineering project too far. But the Japanese didn't have any qualms about using. Um, slaves as engineers and so they had this huge bag of of um, of will, unwilling but nevertheless relatively fit young men who became ill very quickly so they were good engineers and they, they planned the railway and it was built in sections and the sections all met up so the engineering drawings were extraordinarily successful and although the men built the railway they didn't unlike the film they didn't have anything to do with the design it was the fifth and the ninth imperial japanese engineering units that actually oversaw the construction of the railway, and the Brits and the Australians and the Kiwis and the um, uh, Americans, they were all just slaves. They were literally used to slaves.
1: How, how close did the Japanese get to seriously being able to invade India? Was it like Hitler with the invasion of England that they sort of talked about it, they made plans, but it wasn't really something they could seriously do, they didn't have the man, manpower? I
0: think they were too stretched. I think that was the issue as the um, Germans had in Russia they had underestimated the complexities of invading india and they their, their their line going up through the railway it was just it just was not efficient enough um, you know the railway was bombed heavily by the by the british and the americans um, from 1943 onwards and what's interesting is that that initially it would take 24 hours to get from bangkok to Maine. and by the time the um, by the time the war was coming to an end, and by the time the planned invasion was going to take place, it was taking five days, so their their supply line was just too fragile.
1: You you told a great story about the famous scene at the end where the bridge is, of course, blown up, which didn't happen in real life, but adds a wonderful element to the movie. And I'd like you to tell that story. But before you do, I just want to mention Sam Spiegel produced the film. David Lean directed. David Lean went on to go uh, to do Lawrence of Arabia. Um, Sam Spiegel someone who I admire a lot with the quality of the films that he did. I think the old Hollywood, he admired the British a lot. I think his adage was, or the adage at that time, think Yiddish and dress British um, in terms of, um, <laughs> that, that was, because so, so, as many of the Hollywood people did, they admired them. But could you could you mention that last scene, please, with the, that's, that's some of the problems they had? and.
0: It, it, I absolutely will. So the film was not filmed in Thailand at all because when the art director went to have a look at Thailand, he found it flat, boring, and there was a bridge there already. So they chose Singapore. Oh, uh, sorry, they chose Sri Lanka to film, and they went to a place about three hours from Colombo called Kittil Gala, where there was a beautiful river with white rapids, and they built the bridge, it was constructed, in fact they did build two bridges there too, so this great wooden bridge was, was created for the film and Sam Spiegel was an enormously flamboyant character as you've just illustrated and so when he came to um, the scene where they were going to bring the train over the bridge and blow it up. He invited many dignitaries and people who supported the film from Colombo, and they had a grand feast, and there was a, a, a sort of tables laid out and umbrellas, and the scene was set. And Don Ashton, the art director, and David Lean were standing ready to film. Don Ashton had uh, a board with five light bulbs on it, and there were five cameramen who were going to watch the bridge explode. But because it was really dangerous, what they were going to do was they were going to set the cameras running on David Lean's command and then switch a switch that would cause a light to light up on the board. And so Don Ashton could be certain that his five cameramen were safe. So David Lean gives the command, the train in the background, pouring with smoke, it's all very tense and exciting, and the first cameraman who's on the train jumps off presses his light light bulb comes on second third fourth the fifth cameraman a man called Freddie ford turned on his camera jumped away but he forgot to light his light and so don ashton and david lean had to make a split second decision did they blow the bridge up and risk killing Freddie ford or did they allow the train to rumble on and they decided to stay their hand so the train went tearing over the bridge and crashed into some sandbanks beyond the bridge and it was a complete non-event so all the dignitaries had to go back to Kittle Gala and three days later they managed to haul the train back and then it took place. The great explosion took place dramatically. The most expensive explosion in movie history to date was $56,000 worth of explosives. That took place in front of a few locals. <laughs>
1: and Sam Spiegel, I think he exaggerated, said it was 250000 right? Uh... He did. He
0: was very he was hugely enthusiastic about the whole project. So he told, he told people that in the publicity leading up to the film, it had been a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar scene explosion, great drama. But in fact, I found, a, I found the account. I'm a great sniffer out of detail, and I found the account um, when I was looking through David Lean's papers, and, and there it was, fifty six thousand dollars. But still, a lot of money in nineteen
1: fifty seven. Yes, that's that's fair. Right. Yeah. Um, if I could just take you a little bit to um after the war ends, um Hirohito, the Emperor of Japan, is made a knight of the garter, you, you mentioned, and that was a controversial um a little bit controversial in England. What was your, your grandfather's position on that?
0: So this a Knight of the Garter. He'd been a Knight of the Garter prior to the war. He was stripped of it during the war, and the decision was taken in the 1970s to, uh, late 1960s, to reinstate him. And he felt that the Queen had been put into a very difficult position, um, and he felt very sorry for her. But he respected the diplomacy behind it, and so when the prisoners told him they were going to object, when. Um, it, Hirohito came to London. He ordered them not to object. He ordered them to behave in a um, seemly way and not to demonstrate against Hirohito. And it was it, it was quite controversial. Not not all the prisoners were happy with him. But he had terrific personality, and he was very frail. He had had major heart surgery. And Peter Davis, who wrote a early biography of him, told me that he went into the hall and he saw this frail old man standing up, aged 72 and nearly dying, in front of 3,500 men, and he ordered them in a very calm but very firm voice not to, not to disgrace him and not to disgrace the Queen. And he said it was quite extraordinary. The entire hall was absolutely silent. Nobody murmured. And when he left the stage, because Many knew it was the last time they'd ever see him alive. They threw the hats in the air and their walking sticks, they cheered and clapped. It was quite extraordinary. But Peter said he knew that Tuzi had such command over his men that they would listen to him. And they did. And so they did not demonstrate. Some of the men turned their backs when Hirohito was driven down towards Buckingham Palace, but nobody demonstrated.
1: As you know, after the war, MacArthur, who was the American commander in, in Japan after the war, made the decision to basically cover up a lot of his role in war crimes because the Americans felt we needed Hirohito to control Japan and, also, and we were concerned about the Soviets, etc. But his brother was in charge of Unit 731, which was doing terrible experiments on behalf of the Japanese in, in China, uh, nerve agents, almost like an Auschwitz ah. type thing. As, as you, I don't know how much of that was known by your grandfather at the time or when Hirohito was made Knight of the Garter.
0: I don't know how much he knew about that, to be perfectly honest. He wasn't a particularly political man, and I don't think he was senior enough. I think that would have been known at brigadier and above level. He would, Remember, he was only a field officer. He wasn't a staff officer. I, I do know that he was the representative of the prisoners of war when the Japanese decided to pay war reparations to the prisoners, and he was told to go and meet the Japanese ambassador, and he found that very uncomfortable. He didn't... He, it was the first time he'd met... Officially, a Japanese since the war, and that that did trouble him. But he but he was very private about it. He never spoke about why it troubled him, other than the obvious reason that it, it brought back some very unpleasant memories. Yes. Um. But but all he really cared about, all his life, were the men. That that was his prime concern from the day he arrived at Singapore and after the defeat to the day he died. Just. Um, to f- just he, was f- still, he was still getting 100 letters a week from prisoners um, in the 1960s.
1: Really? And when did your grandfather yeah. uh, pass away? 70s? He died He died on 23rd of
0: December 1975. So he was um, he was 71.
1: Did you know him fairly well yourself?
0: Yeah, I did. Well, I was, somebody was asking me this the other day. I did know him, but I knew him as a granddaughter, you see. Right. Um, he was... I was born in 1960, so I was 15 when he died. Uh, but he was ill from about 1969 onwards. So my memory of him is as a very frail old man was the most brilliant repertoire of whistles. He was very funny and full of humour, full of joie de vivre, even when he was dying. And it was so as a, as a child, as children, we absolutely loved him. And the only time I ever remember being frightened of him was when my sister and I, we must have been about seven and nine, were staying with him and my grandmother. And uh, my grandfather was cooking mince for the dogs in the back kitchen. They had two kitchens, one little back kitchen where he kept his boots and his... Shotguns and everything. He was a great, great, uh, great shooter. And um, he he was boiling up this mint, and my sister walked into the kitchen. And she turned up her little nose and she said, That's disgusting. What is it? And he said, It's mint for my dogs. And she said, I'd rather die than eat that. And he turned around on her, and she was only tiny, turned around and he went, Never, ever let me hear you say something like that again <laughs> in my life. Where? was. That would have been a feast for my men. And he walked out and he slammed the door and she burst into floods of tears because she was terrified. And I remember standing thinking, oh, gracious Grandpa Bush, that's horrific. And then he came back in and was apologetic and scoop drop and petted her. But she just had triggered well, something that was so fundamental in him.
1: Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. We touched on this briefly via email, but I, I think I mentioned to you that my grandfather served um, in both the Pacific and the Atlantic theater. And you were he, saying, he did, yes. and you were saying that um, the Pacific theater was, was uh, more brutal, had more of an impact, of course. And you had definitive studies showing that, like, the, the impact of people serving in Asia was much greater. Is that fair to say? Then?
0: I think it's absolutely fair to say, and I think there's several reasons for it. Um, in terms of the prisoners of war, it was because. They were unable to communicate with their families. There were barely any. There was barely any correspondence. Whereas people who were in Germany and Africa and uh, fighting on the European front, they 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 had letters. So I think there was a sense they were completely cut off. They got no assistance from the Red Cross except towards the very end. Um, and that I think re- they really suffered. So they didn't have medicines. And I think in terms of the fighting, for the men who fought in um, India and and um, particularly in near Rangoon in Burma, they they found the foe a very different foe from what they were used to on the European front. The Japanese were extraordinarily brave and tenacious, but they were used to fighting in hand-to-hand combat, and hand-to-hand combat, so I think that was quite shocking. And I think other people who fought in other theatres of the Asian War, they found they weren't fighting an enemy like they had done in the First World War, a familiar enemy.
1: And did your grandfather like the film? Did he enjoy it when he saw it?
0: <laughs> when he would see it, he took my mum. Uh, she was about... Um, 20, I suppose. And he thought it was a very good film. He thought it was amusing and entertaining and great. And then about a month or so later, there was a big meeting of the prisoners of war. And they'd all seen it as well. And they were absolutely horrified because they said, but sir, it's a terrible slur on your leadership. Don't you understand? And after that, he became, he became not Obsessed about the film, but he became obsessed about the idea that people would believe that the Bridge on the River Kwai was true history, whereas it wasn't. Um, and he became very concerned about that right up to the end of his life. But he didn't dislike the film as, as such. He admired David Lean very much.
1: What did he think was the most worrisome part about, about, about a fantasy movie versus the reality? Just what most troubled him? Well, uh, the,
0: the sort of the whole heroic side of, um, uh, of of the sort of you know of the blowing up of the bridge. worried him I think two things he didn't like the um, portrayal of the collaboration the collaborative aspect he didn't like the fact that they were portrayed as being better engineers than the Japanese because he found that was completely false Um, he obviously didn't Proof of the whole scenes with, with the women, because he said the only Thai, woman he, Thai women he ever saw were ones who'd got red teeth because they'd been eating beetles nuts. Um, so he felt that was wrong, but he pointed out um, in an interview that, of course, had they made a film based on the true story, it would have been very grim, because for a lot of the time they were starving hungry and miserable and disease ridden, and you know, you can't make a very entertaining film about people who are suffering from dysentery. So he, he was aware that Hollywood had produced the entertainment, but as I said, he, he really wasn't comfortable with the sort of glorification of, of, the whole, of the whole construction of the bridge.
1: And Saito was actually a fairly humane commander, wasn't he, compared to some of the others on that railroad line?
0: Oh my goodness, yes. So there were there were one or two absolute horrors. Um, the particular one was a man called Noguchi, who was in the last camp. And he, my grandfather thought he probably had syphilis. He was incredibly vicious and aggressive, and um, was meted out totally arbitrary punishments, which nobody could see coming. So on one occasion, he called my grandfather's translator in, because the translator had told one of the Korean guards not to beat another prisoner. And he said to the Korean guard, you know, just watch this, because there'll be retribution after the war. This was May 1945. And um, the Korean guard was very cross. He went to N- Noguchi, and Noguchi just tore a strip off this translator, Bill Drower. And because he was very tall, Bill Drower. He was six foot three, and Naguchi was small. When Naguchi went to hit him hard, which he did, Bill slipped and fell, and he broke Naguchi's desk. And Naguchi was so angry that the Emperor of Japan had been insulted by this man falling on his desk that he stuck him in a hole in the ground. And Bill Drower was in a hole in the ground for seventy-seven days.
1: Well, is that Naguchi the same spelling as the famous designer in, in America? The uh...
0: yes, it is. Uh, no relation, I believe. No relation. N-O-G-U-C-H-I, yes. Wow. Um, but Naguchi was a really nasty piece
1: of work. Yeah. Well, could I? Um, well, just before we conclude, it's been a very interesting discussion. Are you working on anything now that you can uh, tell us about? Or I know, I know you were in New York recently.
0: <laughs> I have been in New York recently. I can indeed. I'm writing a biography, another biography. My first biography of a woman. And this woman was the wartime editor of British Vogue. And the reason I was in New York was to read the files on British Vogue in the Condé Nast archives in Broadway. And I have had the most exciting time there because we found documents that I didn't believe still existed. So it was a very, very thrilling visit. And I shall be writing that biography. Um, I've, I've done 18 months' research, so I'll be writing the biography over the next 10 months. And it hopefully will come out in 2020.
1: Well, that's wonderful. And uh, your website again is uh, Julie Summers, S-U-M-M-E-R-S dot C-O dot U-K. And uh, thank it. you. Thank you so much for coming on the program. It's been wonderful talking with you.
0: Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. It's been a great
1: pleasure. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thursday, May 15th, Holy Apostles Soup Kitchen, New York's largest emergency food program, is hosting From Farm to Tray, a sustainable,